Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I am really excited to welcome Mark Hirschberg to Leave Your Mark. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, I'm excited to talk to you because your topic is a passion point of mine, right? People's careers and career development. And what's so interesting about you is your day job is in tech. You're a chief technology officer. And let's just be really specific. Mark has tracked criminals and terrorists on the dark web. He's created marketplaces and new authentication systems. By the way, I don't even know what an authentication system is, other than if it's like Google Authenticator, which I know what that is. You've spent your career launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500s, and you've also been in academia. You helped to start the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, dubbed MIT's Career Success Accelerator where you teach annually. You also went to MIT. You received a BS in physics and a BS in electrical engineering and computer science. And this one I've never heard of, an M-E-N-G, ENG, in electrical engineering and computer science, focusing on cryptography. And at Harvard Business School, you helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. So you're not smart at all. Of course, you work with many nonprofits, including Techie Youth and Plant a Million Corals. And you were one of the top ranked ballroom dancers in the country. That's crazy. You live in New York City and you're known for your social gatherings, which of course you do in between all of these things. And you're like a Halloween buff. So you have so many facets to your personality and your expertise. And you decide to write this book, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. So Mark, I mean, we have so much to cover. It's not even funny, but let's start from sort of the background. Like, are you from New York originally? Born in New York, grew up in the suburbs of New York, suburbs of Chicago, and in New Jersey. When you were growing up, were you super into computers? I was very into physics. That's what one of my degrees is in, physics and math. And then in high school, I learned about computers and started getting into programming. So I have been a nerd since birth. It is a really good thing to be a nerd. I will tell you, I absolutely hated physics. So even hearing it gives me chills. So when you graduated, what was your first job? My first job was actually as research staff at MIT. We were developing a new software language. 
And from there, I went on to start doing startups because it was the dot-com era, the late 90s. And that was the thing to do when you worked in tech. It's interesting that you have sort of this dichotomy in your personality because I feel like people who are so, so immersed in tech, like you're teaching in something totally different. You're teaching essential career skills, which has nothing to do with technology. It has to do with people skills. They are, in fact, related. There is a thread that really? led from one to the other. When I graduated MIT, I thought, well, I'm a really smart guy. I've got these degrees. I can do all this stuff. And I quickly realized there were a lot of skills I didn't have. And in particular, for the job I wanted, I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. And I began to understand, what does that mean? It doesn't mean I'm the best programmer at the company. Being a CTO means you are running a team. And that involves leadership, communications, team building, negotiating, having a good network. No one ever taught me any of these skills. Interesting. So I had to develop them in myself. And I quickly realized these skills aren't just for executives. They are for everyone. So I tried to train up some of the skills in my teams. Now, MIT around this time had gotten similar feedback. Companies were saying, Look, your kids are very smart, but these are the skills we want to see, and we're not finding them. This is not just an MIT problem. I've seen similar surveys done by other schools, and it's not just for recent grads. These are universal skills, but we're not teaching them in school. So when I heard MIT was trying to address this, I said, you know, I've been doing the same thing in the companies I've been at. Can I help out? And so really it was recognizing what you're pointing out, that shortcoming that when we think about STEM education or really most education, we don't cover these skills. And now we're trying to fix that. So when you recognize the issue in yourself and you were like, okay, I need to work on this. What was the first thing you did for yourself? I started reading books. What kind of books? Any management, leadership, or business skill books I could find. We didn't have great podcasts like this one. We didn't have all the resources of the internet back in the 90s. So books were the easiest way to start to gain information. So when you decided, I mean, you've been teaching this class since what year? 2001 is when we put the program together. 2001. So you've basically groomed hundreds of people in this method that you've created. I and many other instructors and MIT faculty together, because it's certainly not just me, but together we have had thousands of students come through our program. We would typically get about 40 to 50% of the sophomores would take our class. We've had a really great impact. I'm very lucky that we've had that opportunity. So is the main issue that people are just really, quote unquote, book smart, but just don't know how to engage with others? Or... What do you think is the common denominator between all these super smart people? Like, what are the skills they're missing? Well, let's think about this because it's not just an MIT problem. All of us, since we were young, heard your network is so important. It's not what you know, it's who you know. We've heard this over and over. I heard from my parents, my teachers. I'm sure everyone out there has heard it as well. Now think back. All these teachers who told you networking was important, when did they say, okay, class, today we're going to talk about networking? (laughs) When did your parents, when did your professors, they keep telling us this is important, but they have spent more time teaching us how to tie our shoes than how to network. Something is wrong here. Okay. So how do you network, Mark? Networking is first and foremost 
it's a mental shift for most people. It's understanding what networking is about. Too many people out there, I go to these events and say, oh, hey, nice to meet you. Here's my card. You got a card. Okay, got your card. Okay, next person. Hi, nice to meet you. Let's exchange cards. Okay, great to meet you. Next person. And they're collecting it. And we it got worse when we moved to social media. Oh, how many LinkedIn followers do you have? How many connections? Oh, I'm going to add you and you and you. Adding people on your LinkedIn network and saying they're in your network, it's like saying someone you swiped right on Tinder is now your significant other. <laughs> it's such a good example. But what we do, right? You, you want to say, oh, I swiped right on her. She swiped right on me. Great. I'm in love. Right? <laughs> you say, okay, well, good first step. Better than if she swiped left. But now I actually have to build the relationship. Now we have to get to know each other. But we don't think of that professionally. And really, our professional networks, like our personal networks, it is about relationships. And to those who say, I love it, or to those who say, I'm an introvert, I happen to be one, and they don't want to be in that crowd of people just meeting lots of people, hanging business cards, you don't have to because networking is about relationship building. All of us have relationships. And we need to think about building our networks one relationship at a time. How much time do you dedicate to each of those relationships? Because like, I feel like I'm a people person. I'm an extrovert beyond. There's just not enough time to like truly be connected to every single person. And also, I'm like old at this point. So there's so many people in my network. So how much time dedicated to each of those relationships and in what form is okay to sort of catch up with or recommend it to catch up? There is no universal rule. You don't have to say, oh, you know what? I am five minutes short of my allotted time for you. I better call you and catch up. <laughs> Just as we have close friends and less close friends and acquaintances, so too will our network have different levels of mm -hmm. relationships. How much time you want to put into anyone, that's up to you. But think of it this way. We all have lots of friends. And there are friends where it might be, oh, hey, I'm going to be in your city. We should grab coffee and catch up. And then there are friends where you say, listen, I'm moving. I need you to come over Saturday and spend 10 hours helping me pack my apartment. Totally. Probably fewer of the second case than the first. So we have different levels and in your professional network. If it's a simple request, hey, can you pass my resume along to this company? Okay, that's pretty easy. Yeah, I'll, I'll pass your resume. I've had people say, oh, Mark, you know a certain CEO of some billion-dollar company. Can you introduce me? I want to pitch that person. Well, I'm, I'm a little more careful who I'm going to introduce the CEO to because I know he's very busy and I have to protect his time or he's not going to take my phone calls anymore. So for a close friend, and I've actually connected this particular person to two people because they are close friends of mine. And I know they also have good value. They're not just, so. Oh, let me do some cold call. They have something that I think will help. So we're going to have different levels of relationships and that will evolve over different time. Here's the thing to think about. There is clock time and calendar time. And there's a difference. So calendar time, that's how long you've known someone. I meet you at a conference. We chat for a bit. I maybe run into you the next year. And now two years later, I've known you for two years, but I've seen you twice. So we have some level of relationship. On the other hand, if we're coworkers, I show up, hi, nice to meet you. We're going to work together. Oh, wow. We have a big project. There's a deadline at the end of this month, one month, and we're working 12, 14 hour days together. 
we've only known each other a month, but we're gonna have spent so much time together. So that clock time's going much faster. And really there's some combination of clock time and calendar time in all our relationships. And there's no one rule, but just recognize there's some of each that's needed. Who's the demographic for your book? What age? I generally say it's about 20 to 40 office workers. If you are working in some corporate office, this is for you. Certainly there's lots of solopreneurs and entrepreneurs because the skills like negotiating, communication, leadership apply to them too. Mm -hmm. I've had people even in their 40s and 50s say, wow, I wish I knew this when I was younger. So it can't apply more universal by target 20 to 40. Talk to me about, or talk to us, because there's other people listening eventually. What is this about a career plan? Because I didn't have a career plan. I was supposed to be pre-med. So whatever plan I had was definitely not successful. So what is a career plan? Too often, I have seen people say, oh, I want to get to this job. I want to be the director or the VP down the road. And they just kind of hope. Well, if I, <laughs> totally. if I keep working... Maybe I'll get there. Hope is not a plan. You need to actively create a plan and work towards it. Think about your projects at work. Would you ever say, hey, we have to do this project by the end of the year. Well, I hope we get there. <laughs> hey, we say to your boss, look, just cross your fingers and it'll all work out. Of course not. What do you do? You say, well, we're going to create a plan, a project plan, a timeline, a budget. Here are the checkpoints. Here's how we know if we're on schedule, off schedule. And now you know you're never going to exactly follow that plan, right? Something's going to go wrong, and that's fine. Your boss doesn't say, oh, you're two days behind. How dare you? Like, yeah, well, that's how projects work. They'll move the goalposts on you. They'll change the goal. That's normal. And that applies to our career plans as well. So when there's somewhere you want to go, think about what are the steps to get there. If you want to be a CTO, a C-whatever, 15 years from now, what are the skills and experiences and qualifications you need to have achieved in 12 years? Well, to hit that 12-year mark, what do you need to have done by 10 years, by seven years? And so you want to map out a plan with checkpoints along the way. And here's the important part. Revise that plan because it's not going to go according to your plan. And that's okay. So you want to revise it regularly. What are some of the key questions as like a filter you're creating for yourself that people should ask themselves? Because I feel like it's very daunting, right? It's like pen to paper. What's your plan? How do you start? Like, what is the beginning things like so you can sort of take your brain through this process? I start out with about 20 some questions in the book. And these, by the way, are freely downloadable on the website. These are questions that begin with first, what do you want to have life? Because your job has to fit into your larger life. What do you want to do in life? Maybe that's impact on the world. Maybe it's family plans. It might be where you want to live. You know, if you want to work in finance and you want to be really an A player, world-class stage in finance, but you want to live in Alaska, you have a problem. <laughs> that's not going to work because there's not a lot of world-class finance being done in Alaska. So you're going to have to say, whoa, I better refine one of these or uh, make a different decision. Then you think about the job, certain things you might want. Do you want to work with teams? Do you want to work by yourself? Do you want to manage? Do you want to be a solo contributor? Do you want to have a set schedule? Are you a nine to five kind of person? Do you want to set your own hours? Do you want flexibility? So there's all sorts of different questions you can ask that's going to help you think about 
a general career or a specific job within the field that you're in? Great advice. Let's shift gears to management. And specifically, you know, I think you can have a career plan, you can have goals, and you can have really important sort of milestones that you set for yourself. And then you could have a really crappy boss. <laughs> uh, never happened. I don't know what you're talking about. It never happened. So what happens, you've read your book, you've done everything, you're like mapping it all out. You get to, maybe it's your dream job, your dream company, and you land in this department and your boss sucks. How do you manage your manager? Well, if you've read the book, you've gone through chapter two, <laughs> which talks about how to work effectively. Because most of what we learn is what the right answer is. How do I do a end of month closing report in accounting? How do I close a sale? How do I write this code? Whatever your skill set is, you've learned, you've been trained in that skill set. So we know what the answer is, but what we've never been taught is how to give that answer. So how do I, as an engineer, convince the marketing people, no, no, we have to do this. I know you don't get, so I'm going to explain it in a way you can understand. How do you convince your manager this is the direction to go, and especially if your manager wants to go in a different direction? And so there are skills like managing your manager, understanding how your manager likes to communicate, your manager's engagement preferences. For example, does your manager like to do face-to-face -face meetings? Or are emails better? Or maybe you send an email before the face-to-face -face meeting. Knowing this, getting it right or wrong, makes your answer, whatever you're proposing, easier or harder. Because if you've got this brilliant idea and your boss likes to see a well-written out plan before you meet, walk into your boss's office and saying, hey, I've got this brilliant idea. Let me run you through it. You're already putting your boss in the wrong state to accept that plan. So learning how to manage your boss or really any of our coworkers, how they like to engage is not what the answer is, but how to give that answer. When you're in a job interview and the person who is interviewing you is going to be your boss, potentially, what are the kinds of questions you can ask this person to try to make sure or to suss out if this person is gonna be a good manager? Because I feel like sometimes it's like a real trick. Like the person seems okay and then you get in there and you're like, literally either you can do the person's job or they just have no idea how to give direction or manage a team. It is very hard. Now, first remember, a good interview is a two-way street. You are interviewing this person as much as she or he is interviewing you. Little caveat there, if you're 22 right out of school and there's literally 100 people applying for this role, okay, it's a little more on you. But when you start to get mid-career, and now there may be two or three other candidates who are qualified, but it's really you and only just a handful, not of applicants, but of qualified people. Well, likewise, there's two or three companies you're considering. So it really is a balance that both sides need to sell the other. So don't be afraid to ask questions. Now, when you ask questions, it's easy to say, tell me about your management style. Oh, what do you do if you have a difficult employee? And it's easy to give the right answer. Asking that question, it's a lot like, what are your weaknesses? If you've done any training, you know how to answer that question in an interview. So when we ask questions as either a candidate or the hiring manager, what we want from the other side is for them to show and not just tell. 
So when you ask your potential boss, or really a candidate if you're on the other side, okay, how would you deal with a difficult subordinate who isn't delivering well on his work or not meeting your expectations? And he says, oh, well, you know, I would sit them down and talk with them. Ask, can you give me an example? Let's talk about a specific employee where you had this problem. How long did you wait? How many times did you sit down and talk? Don't do it in the abstract. Look at their actions. So always ask for examples. Okay, I have to challenge you here, Mark, because if I was interviewing someone who was grilling me on how I oversee my team, I would be like, okay, this is a really weird line of questioning. And it's one thing to say like, okay, what's your management style? Or, you know, if someone's not delivering, I mean, I feel like even asking the question, like if someone's not delivering dot, 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 isn't it almost like a weird foreshadow that you're like teeing yourself up that, okay, I might not deliver. So like, how are you going to treat me? So I feel like we need to peel this back a little bit and get a little bit more granular because the interviewee should ask great questions. But I also think the question shouldn't be where all of a sudden the hiring manager is like, is this person going to be a problem? Certainly. And you have to ask this in context. You just say, oh, well, the most important question, what happens if we have an employee who's lazy? Right? <laughs> That's not how you want to start. But in the set of questions you'll ask, and here's one way you can phrase it. Now, I don't always use this because it comes as part of many questions I ask in many aspects. So it just seems like, oh, we've talked about lots of things, the strategy, the culture, and oh, let's just touch upon this. But one way you can get into it is to say, it's always great to talk about when things go well at a company. What I find useful is to always understand what happens under stressful circumstances, when things don't go well. We can judge societies by how they handle that. We judge marriages by how they handle it. So I always like to look at companies as well. Can you give me some examples of when things haven't gone well with employees in the past and how you've handled that? That's interesting. That's interesting. And I think that's a fair question. And I think that's not setting the person up for sort of any negative impression, but also giving the person an opportunity to get a sense of like what they're dealing with in management. Yes. What are some of the mistakes people on interviews make lately? As a candidate or as a hiring manager? Candidate. Candidate, well, certainly lately, as we're coming from home, people don't pay attention to their backgrounds. And your background is sending signals about you. Thank you. Totally agree. <laughs> that doesn't mean you have to have a perfectly manicured background. And most people today are thankfully so much better that if in the middle of the interview, your three-year-old runs up to you, we get it. We all get it. We've all been there. Don't worry about that. But it's things such as you're sitting in front of a window, so you're backlit and we can't see your face. One of my pet peeves, people who have fans overhead. And so you have this constant motion going <laughs> on the image. And I just find it distracting. So just think for a moment and try to look at your background. Get a friend or a few other people just look at for you. And certainly make sure you have a decent mic. Don't worry so much about the lighting but at the very least, invest in a decent mic so they can hear you. Because if they're struggling to hear you, 
that doesn't matter how brilliant your answers are. Their focus is not on the answer, but on trying to understand. Mark, there are a lot of career books out there. I know a book called Leave Your Mark. That's a lovely little book that people read. Why the book now? I mean, you've been doing this. You've been teaching this for a really long time. You could have done it many years ago also. But why did you feel like you needed to put it on paper now? The timing wasn't necessarily planned. <laughs> Love that. Honest answer. I had no idea. <laughs> there, there's no, oh my God, this moment it's needed. But why we need this, why it's different than other books out there. There's two reasons. First, most other books don't cover the breadth that we do in this book. There's 10 chapters, each on a different skill. And there's plenty of books on leadership or just on communication or just on negotiation, by covering all 10, I get two things. First, you're probably not gonna sit there and read 10 books anyway. Second, these skills really build on each other. If you are a good leader, that means you have good communication skills. And good communication skills are going to help you in your negotiations. So these skills really help reinforce each other. That's one thing I can address by doing the book as I did. The second reason, it's something I haven't seen in other books. And of course, I have not yet read your book, so we'll exclude any general comments on business books. Okay, we'll interview is now it. over. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> You're not my demographic, so don't worry. <laughs> the, the thing about my book, from having taught for two decades at MIT, we've really looked at from a research perspective, because we have this wonderful faculty that's doing research on this, but also the practitioners like myself and the experience teaching it. We've refined this over decades. And what you get in each chapter is a mental shift on how to approach each topic. Like what we spoke about of networking is not handing out business cards, networking is relationship building. And once you make that mental shift that you get in each of the chapters, then there's a lot of concrete things you can do to execute on that and continue to develop your skill set there. And that's something I haven't seen in other business books. Walk us through some essential components of emotional intelligence at work. That is quite the broad list. Now, I use the term firm skills in my book, which is a term they came up with at MIT. We, of course, do plenty of hard skills, the STEM skills, and soft skills is this big amorphous area. So one of the directors of the program coined the term firm skills as a dual meaning. And so I think of these as firm skills as opposed to soft skills, because soft skills can really be almost anything. And when we get to EQ, I think EQ can include a lot of different soft skills. It can include empathy, for example. I don't have a good way to teach empathy. Others probably do, but I don't think it's as quantitative. I don't think it's as firm as, say, negotiations or communication, where we can measure it in certain ways. So when we get to EQ, I think it's a very broad category. And I would even say it encompasses the firm skills that we're talking about as well. So it's broad and really that plays in because this goes to what we were saying earlier. It's not just getting the right answer. It's being able to deliver that answer to others in your organization. And that's where the EQ comes in. Of course, because you're 
a chief technology officer, you created an app for this book because you couldn't help yourself. Tell us about the app because I love I love a companion. I call it companion merch, basically, but it's obviously tech. But tell us about that. One of the challenges I have found with all the books I've read is you read a book, you say, oh, wow, what great advice. And then you forget three weeks later, we're on to the next book, we're busy at work. And these are skills that you don't simply learn and say, oh, Mark said to do this. Great. I hope I remember it six months from now when that opportunity arises. So because of my background in technology, in education, and having worked in media, I sat there and thought about what can I do to solve this information loss problem? And I came up with the app. And honestly, I didn't even want to build the app. I figured someone must have built it. I'm just going to license it, but it didn't exist. So filed a patent around it, created the app. Here's how it works. And you can go to the app or Android store, download it for free. The Career Toolkit. The Career Toolkit app. Okay. And it, I'll mention uh, the link to the website later, which has links to there. When you download this, each day it's going to pop up a reminder. If you had gone through the book with a highlighter, here's an important tip. Here's a good quote. That's what's in the app. It's just going to pop up as a notification each day. So you look at it and say, all oh, right, good tip, swipe it away, done. Because I know you're not going to open the app. You're not going to check every day. You're not going to flip back through the book. So you don't have to make any effort, and it helps keep the content top of mind. The other way you can use the book, suppose you said, wow, there was some really great negotiation advice in the book, but that was two months ago, and I'm about to walk into a negotiation. I don't have the book with me. I'm not going to reread it anyway open up the app, jump to negotiations, and quickly flip through those tips, and that's going to refresh your mind with them. So you can use it one of two ways, and it's there to help you retain the content. I love that. I feel like you should build my app. I mean, yeah. Well, we're actually putting out a white label version so other authors can provide the same service to their customers. Oh, well, I love that. Okay, switching gears again, because there's so much to discuss. And I thought about this randomly this morning. I don't know why I did. But I find that I think a lot about, because, you know, obviously, I'm a huge believer in growing talent and being a mentor. And I, I've tried to do that my entire career for my direct reports. And a lot of times I see people who are really good at their job, but they don't have a voice in the company or they don't speak up in a meeting because they're really intimidated. And speaking sometimes even on a Zoom with five people is really, really challenging for some. So if you are someone who's uncomfortable, whether in person or on camera, delivering ideas, impromptu, maybe unsolicited ideas, and really creating a voice for yourself, what would you recommend that they do? My first answer to that is actually going to be to their bosses. If you are a manager listening, recognize that there are some people who are great. You put in the meeting and they're going to jump in and shout. And there are others who are quiet, who need to reflect independently. Understand how you communicate and elicit answers and ideas. So if you need to have a meeting this Thursday at noon, where you're going to discuss what should we do for the ACME project, instead of bringing up in the meeting and say, okay, everyone, spitball ideas classic brainstorming, say everyone in the meeting that we're going to have in two days, these are the key questions we're going to address. Please take some time to think about ahead of time. 
Those who are perhaps more introvert or introspective, take those two days, think about what you want to say, come with some written up ideas. Those who I think best in the moment, okay, don't think about it. Just do it on the spot there. But you're creating effectively two channels to elicit the best in people and they can self-select. Whereas if you just say, surprise everyone, we're going to talk about the Acme project today, you killed one of those channels. You didn't give them the opportunity. Now, if you are one of those people, what you can try to do is encourage your boss to give you agenda items ahead of time and say, oh, it would be great if you just had more formal agendas. This way I can think and plan through ahead of time. And hopefully your boss will provide that. You can explicitly direct your manager to this episode. There's some really <laughs> great advice you should hear. Of course, you should, you should recommend this episode to your manager anyway, because all the wonderful content that you get on all of Elisa's podcasts. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Um, colleagues, competitive colleagues, colleagues who don't have your back, colleagues who are not team players. What do we do with them? Do we take them outside and kill them? <laughs> you know, HR typically frowns on that. They do. That's been right. my experience. Right. Okay, fine. It feels nice, but no, you wind up with an HR violation. You need to develop your internal networks because the best way to combat bad politics and someone out to get you is strength in numbers. We always think about networking as, well, this is the tool where I go find a new job. Why do I want to network with my coworkers? Get a new job here. But when you think about networking the right way, as we talk about in the book, it's about relationships and it's not just about jobs. And internal networking is so vitally important, but often overlooked. You want to build your network in the company. Then when you have someone come after you, someone is bad mouthing you, someone is trying to squash your project, you now have a whole bunch of allies who can come to your aid, who can put out the right information about you, about your project, and you're not fighting this person alone. I have to say for this topic, the best source of information that I drew from for my book was Survival of the Savvy. That is a truly fantastic book on how to deal with corporate politics. Oh, I've never heard of it. Yeah. And I reference in my book, I reference about two dozen other books and I list them very clearly. And they're also listed on the website. So if you want to go deeper in a topic, you can jump to another great book to really go further than what you might get in only a chapter in my book. The website is thecareertoolkit.com, right? Thecareertoolkitbook.com. Thecareertoolkitbook.com. Switching gears to negotiation, my favorite topic. What are some of your best tips for negotiating an offer? When negotiating a job offer, and this is always the most popular topic when it comes to negotiation, when negotiating your job offer, first do your research. Understand where is the market, where are your relation to the market, and then recognize as well that when you negotiate, I don't care what you want. You might come in and think, well, I want to get 10000 more. Honestly, I don't care that you want that. It doesn't help me. What I do want is you to work at my company. I do want a good, competent person to be in that job. The fact that you want $10,000 more, irrelevant, except in that I might have to give you that money to get that good, competent person in the role. So when you go in, don't just think about, well, this is what I want. 
think about how can this benefit the company? How can this benefit the other side? So for example, if you'd like to get $1,000 more, so of saying, well, I want a thousand more. Perhaps you can think about, you know, I spend a thousand dollars on books and classes and online seminars. What if instead of asking for a thousand dollars cash, I ask for a thousand dollars in credit? In fact, depending on how your tax deductions are working, that might even be worth more than a thousand dollars because it's effectively pre-tax. And then you say to the company, you know, I, I really i am interested in this job. I'd like to do a little better. If you can do $1,000 more and do it as perhaps uh, education budget for me, because now I'm going to learn skills that we can use to help me be better in my job. So you're taking your want and aligning it to the want of the other party in this negotiation. When we teach negotiations, we often start with this basic example. So classic example is you're haggling at the bazaar and you're trying to buy an item. You as the buyer, you want to pay as little as possible, the seller obviously as much as possible, and you're going to find a number. Every extra dollar that I talk you down is one more dollar in my pocket, but every dollar you talk us up, one more dollar in your pocket. The number of dollars at the end of this transaction is fixed. It's just a question of how we're dividing it. So it always sums to a fixed amount. We refer to that as zero sum. There's no outcome that creates more value. On the other hand, other types of transactions can create more value. So a classic example, if we're covering shifts in a hospital and I have to cover the shift this week, you have to cover on the weekend, you'd really rather be home, and I've got my kids play in school during the day, I really want to get away. Well, if we switch our shifts, Okay, no one's getting paid more. There's no dollar amount more or less. You're happier you get your weekend. I'm happier I get to see my kid in the show. We're both happier. We're better off. We have created additional value. And now most people think, well, I'd rather do a negotiation that's just about money or just one thing. But when you have multiple dimensions, and that might be usually money is some component, but there might be timing issues, there might be additional support, there might be other things you can trade. As you have multiple issues, you can start trading things off that might be more valuable to you and less valuable to me, and we can actually generate more net value when we trade them off. And that is not zero sum, and that's actually what we want to do when we negotiate. Great advice. Okay, and how can I have this episode and not ask you about your work on the dark web and with terrorists because hello that's just crazy of course that's the next logical question given what we've talked about my graduate work was in cryptography and so i've done a lot of cybersecurity work the authentication systems you mentioned earlier google authenticator is one form of that and i've built other forms of uh, authentication now for this particular company we effectively did intelligence gathering so when you think about the spies who go out in the field and infiltrate groups and get information, that's what we're doing, but electronically, to be fair, from the safety of our chairs. I don't want to suggest we're, we're quite at the same level of risk as those people who really put everything on the line. And so we would go out onto the parts of the dark web where a lot of bad things happen and try to infiltrate these communities and gather information. That information then would get passed to 
various government branches and agencies, as well as corporate clients who want to understand who might come after us, when, where, how. So I always thought of us, we were Paul Revere. We weren't the army, we weren't stopping the British, but we're telling you the British are coming by land or by sea, so you can figure out where do you want to marshal your defenses. And because you have many sides to your personality, explain the ballroom dancing, because that is definitely left of center, considering everything else. That, it turns out MIT has both one of the largest ballroom clubs and one of the largest ballroom teams. And in fact, MIT, we've produced a number of ballroom champions coming out of our community and our team. And I was just lucky to get involved and train with a world-class team. So throughout my 20s, I competed. I used to go to the national championships. Um, unfortunately, retired from competitions now. I don't get to, I don't get to dance as much as I'd like. I haven't competed in a while, but it was a wonderful activity. And by the way, ballroom dancing is one of the best things I did for my public speaking. If you are trying to become a better public speaker, Yes, take speaking classes, go to Toastmasters, do formal training, but also consider a sport or martial arts, acting, improv, juggling, or ballroom dancing. Because even though we're not speaking during ballroom dancing, we are out there on the floor competing, often screwing up. And for a lot of public speaking, the really hard part for people is getting over that embarrassment. Right, you see, oh my God, if I go up, what if I say the wrong thing? What if, what if I forgot to zip up my pants? What am I doing wrong? When you're on the ballroom floor, you are going to make lots of mistakes and you're gonna realize it doesn't matter. And that's going to build up the confidence. So really anything where other people are watching you, it's gonna build up your confidence and that is going to help your public speaking, your leadership and so many other skills. You know you have a radio voice, right? Thank you. I have gotten it quite a bit and it's been helpful because with the book out, I've been doing lots of podcasts. Okay, Mark, this is the moment. Like I asked all my guests, how do you ultimately want to leave your mark? I have a variety of interests. I never wanted to just do only one thing. But when it comes to leaving my mark, I would like to have a happy, healthy family, have a wonderful career that challenges me and that I enjoy to help others individually, and to leave this world a better place. Mark, this was so great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And on that website, at thecareertoolkitbook.com, not only can you get in touch with me and follow me on social media, there are links that will take you to the Android and iPhone store. You can also go to the resources page where I link to the other books. I have a bunch of free downloads. So there's lots of great things on that website, all at thecareertoolkitbook.com. Thank you for having me on the show. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.